seeing and declaring Jesus. That's the goal this morning. Seeing and declaring Jesus. That's it. It's all of it. Seeing Him, having Him come better into focus for us, and declaring His greatness. That's the goal this morning. That's what I think Mark wants us to do with this passage. That's what I want to have happen with this passage. And that's what I've been praying that the Spirit of God will do for us as we look at this text this morning. I love action movies. I grew up on action movies. I know some of you, your opinion of me, which was already low, just dropped a few more notches. That's okay. I even love action movies from the 90s when you had such great actors as Sylvester Stallone. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Steven Seagal, who, for no good reason, is still making movies. There's nothing like a good action movie. I loved action movies. The depth of character development and plot were just... They drew me in. Okay, maybe not, but... It might be the reason that my, my, I love the Gospel of Mark so much. Mark is jam-packed with action. Mark is, is frantic in his pace. If Mark was an audio book that you were listening to, the only way to listen to it correctly would be to speed it up three times fast so that Mark sounded like a, a chickmunk after, after having ten espressos. And the only time he would slow down is for a few moments to focus us in on Jesus Christ because that's what Mark is obsessed with. Now I could spend lots of time telling you why I believe that the Mark in the, in the Gospel of Mark is John Mark and why I think that he is writing uh, stories that he's heard from Peter and purposely compiling those. Gospel of Mark is not chronological. And I could tell you why I think he's writing predominantly to Gentile believers who are suffering under persecution by Nero in Rome. But I won't bore you with all of that. If you disagree with me, we can have lunch together and we'll talk about it and it'll be interesting, but we'll save everybody else from that. But that's what I think is happening. There are some major themes in Mark and one of them comes right in Mark chapter 1 in verse 1 when Mark gives one of his few uh, commentaries as he moves through his gospel and that's that, that this gospel is the beginning. Now that's interesting because we've been looking at the beginning beginning in Genesis. And Mark starts out his gospel with that word beginning. In Mark's mind, what happens in Christ is just as significant as the first creation. Mark's also focused in on Jesus as the Son of God. Now there's two themes with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. One is that He's the Son of God. That connects us with His deity. And then there's also that He's the Son of Man. Jesus takes on His lips often that title, Son of Man. And Son of Man appears way more often in the Gospel of Mark than Son of God. In fact, Son of God appears in chapter 1, verse 1, as Mark writes his little commentary note. The next person who's going to speak of Jesus as the Son of God is God the Father. And he's going to do that at Jesus' baptism when when he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. After that moment, the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God will come more out of the mouths of demons than anyone else. 
And in Mark's account of the life of Christ, the declaration of Jesus' deity does not appear until almost the end of the gospel and it is spoken out of the mouth of the most unlikely individual of a Roman soldier who has participated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, sees him breathe his last and says, surely this man was the Son of God. Irony is another theme in the gospel of Mark. You can break the Gospel Mark down into three sections. First section, you've got Jesus in His ministry in and around Galilee. The next section, you've got Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. And the final section is Jesus' time in Jerusalem, which ends, of course, with His death, burial, and resurrection. We are in that beginning section in Mark chapter 5. And Jesus in this time is demonstrating how powerful and authoritative He is. It's significant that you understand the audience that he's writing to because these Gentile believers are suffering greatly under what would have been easily understood to be the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And the Roman Empire was the greatest empire on the face of the earth. And Mark is reassuring them that your Jesus is a greater king and his kingdom is greater. And they need to see that and be encouraged and comforted by that. So Mark has been going about showing the great power of Jesus to the point where in Mark chapter 3, the the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, have to explain away Jesus' power and authority. And so they say, he does these things by the power of Satan. And interestingly enough, in Jesus' reply, when he reminds them, hey, a house divided against itself can't stand, he also adds this, he says, listen, no one is able... To go in and rob the strong man's house, plunder his house, unless he is powerful enough to bind the strong man. I think Jesus is talking about Satan. And we'll see why that is significant as we look at this passage. As was mentioned, as we come into Mark chapter 5, and in our our text it says, verse 1, and they came to the other side of the sea. And so we need to know how they got into a boat and why they were traveling. Well, they're traveling because in Mark chapter 4, Jesus told them to get into a boat. He's setting all of this up. That's purposeful. He has just finished one of the longest discourses in the Gospel of Mark, which is the beginning part of Mark chapter 4 where he gives kingdom parables and he makes very clear that the kingdom of God is going to grow and you don't understand all of how it's going to grow, but you, it's not in your control. You don't advance the kingdom. You don't, you don't make it happen. It's God who makes the kingdom grow and it is going to happen. And you will be amazed to see how it happens And nothing and no one can stand against it. Then Jesus gets the disciples in the boat, and we know this story, Mark chapter 4, and I would be embarrassed if you went back and you listened to any tapes that might exist, yes, actually tapes, that might exist of me preaching that passage, because I, like many a teacher and preacher, have totally destroyed that passage. Mark chapter 4, Jesus in the boat, and I am resisting the desire to go into all of that. But let me tell you this, the point of Mark chapter 4 and what Jesus has just experienced with his disciples is not a name it and claim it theology. It is not that the disciples should have known Jesus was primed to give them the miracle if only they had named it and claimed it. The purpose of that moment is that the disciples needed to understand who was in the boat with them. If they understood what Mark said from the very beginning, this is the Son of God, then they would have known the Son of God did not put on flesh and come and dwell on earth so He could drown in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Their faith should have been in who Jesus was, not in what He would do for them or accomplish 
in that moment for them. Now, it's important that you remember that because the disciples are probably still wet. They're tired. You've all had those car trips before, right? Everything was going great. Then somebody says something. Then it gets a little heated. Next thing you know, people are shouting. Dad threatens to pull over the car. Then it's silence. The disciples have had this experience where they thought they were going to die. This great power they could not contain, Jesus contains with a word, and the only question they have is, who is this man? I have a feeling, earbuds went in, everybody just started listening to their playlist, favorite playlist, and there wasn't a lot of conversation going on the rest of that boat ride. Now, one of the other questions that might have started to come into their mind is, wait, where are we going? Because Jesus is very purposely steering him, as we're told here in verse 1, towards the region or the country of the Gerasenes. Now, there is some discrepancy here. Matthew uses a different place than what Mark lists here. And exactly where this place is, is a matter of debate. I'll just sum it up and say this. I think what Mark is doing and I think what Matthew are doing is they are doing what you and I do when people ask us where we're from. We don't say, hey, I'm from Fayetteville. Because their next question is going to be, where is that? And then you say, it's near Atlanta, right? And then if somebody asks that person where you're from, what are they going to say? Oh, he's from Atlanta, right? So you say, we're from Atlanta, right? Because why? Be- because there's no point in at telling people you're from Fayetteville. It, it just, it, and so that's what I think that's what Mark is doing. He has a specific audience he's writing to and he's listing the place that would help them to know the region in which this took place. Now, the actual funny thing is that the specific name that Mark gives is over 30 miles away from the shore. Now, that's a little problematic because it tells us in verse 2 that it's when Jesus stepped out of the boat. That would have been a really big step. The way funnier thing is the idea of 2,000 pigs hauling it for 30 miles so that they could throw themselves off of a cliff into the sea. I don't ever want to see a pig that's run 30 miles. And if I was forced to run 30 miles, I would probably want to throw myself off of a cliff and drown in the sea. So more than likely, that's what's happening. But it's important to know this. This region of the Decapolis is a Gentile area. At one point in time, under the kingdom of Israel, under David, it had been a part of, 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 of the kingdom. There was a large Jewish community but there were tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and, and in the minds, I think, of these Jews, this would have been going outside of kind of a, a safe territory. This was not established Jewish territory. But Jesus is going to show, him, show them that His power knows no limits, no borders, and no boundaries. Verse 2, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This man is demon-possessed. Now, Mark is not one to spend a lot of time describing things. And all of the men here are like, I understand that. I like that. Mark spends more time describing this man than he does John the Baptist, if that gives you an idea of how intent Mark is on this guy. It is rare that Mark ever shifts the spotlight away from Jesus. And when he does, it always comes shooting straight back. So Mark really wants us to see this guy and it's very purposeful. So he says that this man has an unclean spirit. He is demon-possessed. And then in verse 3, 
It tells us that he lived among the tombs. The language is very clear. This man didn't just hang out in the tombs. He lived. He dwelled. He felt at home with dead people. Now don't picture a graveyard. Picture caves or man-made caves where people laid dead bodies and this man lived in those caves with decomposing flesh. That's a conversation ender right there. Hey, where do you live? I, I live with dead people. Okay, great. That's freakish enough. Just imagine the way this man smelled if he spent his time living with dead people. What this signifies about his relationships. Then he goes on to describe the power that this man possessed. Continuing in verse 3, And no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Now, this language is really clear. Mark isn't saying there were guys who tried to bind him, but they tie knots like I tie knots, and so it failed. That's not what they're saying. That's the, he is very clearly saying, no, people successfully bound him, both hands and feet, and this man broke those bindings apart. No one was able to subdue him. Now, now Mark is setting something up here, and there's a reason I told you about Mark chapter 3, because the language is the same and the verb is the same. No one was able to subdue this man. No one could bind this strong man. Do you get what I'm going? Do you get where I'm going here? No one could do that. They had tried and they had failed, and we're told in the Gospel of Matthew that people had just given up and no one passed that way anymore. This man had strength. No one could subdue him. And if that wasn't bad enough, we find out in the next verse that this man could not subdue himself. We're told in verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. Uncontrollable when it came to his mouth. Screaming and yelling. Day and night. And then if that was not bad enough, if all that we've been described, a man living among the dead, more comfortable with the dead than with the living, a man that had, had been so ostracized that the only thing his community wanted to do with him was bind him up, but they couldn't even do that. He's left to live among the dead. He's demon-possessed. He screams and shouts. And if all that wasn't bad enough, Mark leaves us with this final disgusting image that this man takes stones and cuts himself. Now, the language here is gruesome. It is not of somebody who we might think of like in our day and time who's depressed and takes a razor blade or a sharp knife and etches things into their body. That's not the imagery here. The imagery is that this man takes blunt stones, dull stones, and uses them to carve up his entire body. That's literally what it means, to cut himself up. He is absolutely destroying his body. There is every reason to believe that at this encounter between this man and Jesus, the man that is there is covered in scars and likely has open wounds that are just festering where he has been taking stones and mutilating his own body. He is absolutely out of control. If you met this man, you would not go anywhere near him and you would be smart to avoid him. 
Now remember what the disciples have just been through while they were in the boat. And it tells us in verse 6, and when they saw him, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran at him. Now before we continue and before we do something that I think we're all prone to do, it's easy for us to take this man and to push him to the side and go, whoa, that man is so crazy, that man is so far out there, that man is so wild and so weird, I cannot identify with him. But this man in the Gospel of Mark is not intended to be there, so we push him to the side and go, that man is so crazy and so wild and so disgusting, I have no identification with him. The reality is is that Mark wants us to understand that man's outward appearance reflects who every single one of us are on the inside apart from Christ. It sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul would describe of those who are without Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This man is living outwardly. This man shows the absolute depravity and helplessness of mankind. The end result of being enslaved by Satan and enslaved in sin. Our text tells us that he sees Jesus. He sees him from afar and he ran. Now, I do these weird things when I read this and when I study passages like this. I want to know which disciples ran and which were like, bring it, dude. It's on. What? I mean, I'm picturing Peter's ready to go. I, I don't know. Some of the others, I'm thinking Matthew's probably in the boat. Judas is hiding behind Jesus. I don't know. I, we're not even told what Jesus does, but he doesn't seem to flinch. Why does this man run? We don't know. Is there an initial thought that he, he might be able to scare Jesus? Does he recognize who Jesus is? Why is it that this man comes running? But you need to understand that this man coming charging at you is a man who's covered in scars. He's totally naked. He's wild and crazy. And he comes screaming at Jesus. This is a man that nobody could bind. Nobody could control. And he is running right at Jesus. And then the text simply says, and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Okay, now we have to slow down for a moment because it would be easy for us in this moment, especially people like me who grew up on action movies, to go, well, that was anticlimactic. Right? I mean, every good action movie, you got the really bad, bad guy, and you got the good, good guy, and at some point, late in the movie, they've got to face each other. And if that fight scene doesn't go on for like five minutes, and each person get punched in the face like 50,000 times, and somebody gets shot, and another gets stabbed, but then the really good guy pulls deep down inside and finds some way to beat the really bad guy, and then the scene closes, next scene, he's sitting in the back of an ambulance with a blanket on his shoulders. I've never understood that. Why a blanket? I've been shot 10 times, punched in the face 50 times, and a blanket. If I ever get punched in the face 50 times, you give me a blanket, I will punch you. 
So we come to this scene and we go, wait, what happened? Crazy wild man, full of power, cutting himself. He comes running at Jesus. Yes, this is the fight scene. They're going to duke it out. Don't, don't be fooled. Men, I, I want to talk specifically to you. Don't be fooled into thinking that you missed out and that Jesus does not have great power. Don't be fooled into thinking there needs to be some powerful fight scene and struggle here so that Jesus could demonstrate how awesome He is. Jesus has not spoken a word. Jesus has not moved. Jesus just simply is. And a man, as we are told later, who is possessed by, who knows, thousands of demons who no one can contain but sees Jesus, draws near to Him, and finds Himself on His face. Before the feet of Jesus. Now the word here is the word that's translated worship. I think it's rightly translated here that he fell down. But the idea is very clear. It's not just to fall down like he tripped along the way. It is that he fell down because he recognized that the one that was standing before him was the one who was deserving of authority, honor, praise. And who had the power. Don't forget who this man is and don't forget that there are demons inside of him. And I just want you to think for a moment. Don't you think that if any one of those demons thought for a moment that they could take Jesus, they would have at least tried? Don't you think if they thought they could run away, they would have tried? Humans had tried to bind this man with chains and shackles and they had failed. Jesus has no chains, no shackles. It's just His presence and all of these demons and this demon-possessed man know there is nothing they can do but fall at the feet of Jesus. That is power. That is authority. You've got to see that because Mark wants you to see that and you've got to understand This is the Jesus of the Bible. In fact, it comes to the place with these demons where it seems as though their last ditch effort is not to run, not to try and take Jesus, but to get Jesus to swear. What an awful thought. Get Jesus to swear. Now that's what they're saying. We want you to swear to promise by your heavenly Father. And what's the only thing they can... What is the one thing consuming their minds? The one thing consuming their minds is not to torment us. Now what they're talking about, and the other accounts of this make this clear, is they do not want to be sent to the pit. They do not want to be sent to hell, to eternal torment. They know the one standing in front of them is God in the flesh. They declare as much. And they, their one concern, their one last ditch effort is to plead that they will not be sent to eternal judgment. Now listen to me, men. I know that in our day and time, it is easy to begin to get an image that Jesus is somehow just a weak individual. That Jesus, because He is compassionate and He is gracious and He is kind and He is forgiving, that He is like a mama's boy who has no backbone and stands up to nothing and no one and and, and that He would be more somebody you would want to cry on His shoulder than someone you would want to follow into battle. But you've got to see the Jesus of Scripture because He has all power and all authority and all glory and all honor is due Him. There has never 
been a man that has walked the face of this earth that is greater than the Jesus of Scripture. Men, do you understand that? Do you understand that the Jesus of the Bible is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? He is awesome. He is all-powerful and all-authoritative. That even when a legion of demons that none of us in here could overcome stand before Him, they have nothing they can do but bow. It is a total misunderstanding of who Christ is to think that Jesus is some weak guy. You know that annoying guy at work? Sorry if you're this guy. The annoying guy at work who's just always trying to find someone to hang out with him. Hey guys, you want to hang out? Come on, we can hang out. Come to my house. I think we can at times have that idea. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is just the weak guy. He's the guy. He just wants somebody to hang out with him. No, Jesus is the King of Kings. He is all authoritative and all powerful. He is not begging for anyone to join his kingdom or his club. He grants some the privilege by sovereign grace. To step out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is Jesus. This is who He is. You've got to see His power and His authority. Listen, men, if, this, if Jesus was a businessman getting ready to start a business, you would empty every bank account you have, max out every credit card, sell everything you've got. You would put all of the money and give it, take all that money and give it to Him and say, I'm all in. If Jesus was a sports player, you would switch sports, you would play whatever position, you would do whatever you had to do to step on the field with Him. If He was a soldier, you would rather follow Him into battle without a single weapon on you than follow anyone else with a tank. That's who Jesus is. All-powerful all authoritative. The demons are pleading with Him, don't, don't, don't torment us. Verse 8 says, And Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Alright, now if the story wasn't weird enough, it gets weirder. And I know some of you have just been waiting for this moment. You want to know about the pigs, right? It's Father's Day. Bacon fits into Father's Day perfectly. Part of the reason I picked the passage. Why the pigs? What in the world is going on with the pigs? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But Jesus is engaging with this demon through this man, these demons, I should say multiple, just so you know, a legion would be over 6,000 Roman soldiers. Does this man, is he possessed by 6,000 demons? We don't know. Is it, is it that he's possessed by 2,000 demons because it's a demon per pig ratio? I don't know. I have not figured out the demon per pig ratio. We haven't covered that in seminary yet. I'm sure we'll get there at some point. There will be that class, demon versus pig ratio. We don't know. Here's one of the reasons that I think this does happen, though. I think it happens because we've got to remember Jesus is having a power encounter with things that are not visible with the human eye. 
There's a man who's there and he's crazy and yes, he's bowing down and, and, and I think there are audible voices that are, that are being spoken here. But when Jesus gives the command for these demons to leave, the fact that they have left, we'll see later on in the passage, those who come who didn't witness it firsthand will both see the formerly demon-possessed man clothed and in his right mind and they will also be able to walk over and look into the sea see a bunch of pig bobbers floating up and down. They will not be able to deny what's happened. That's the point. And I think that's one of the reasons. It may not be the only reason, but that I think is one of the reasons. So Jesus gives them permission. Now, I've never been in the presence of 2,000 pigs. I just want you to think about that for a moment. 2,000 pigs. That just smells. Thinking about it. 2,000 pigs. And all at once, 2,000 pigs go stampeding down a steep slope and drown themselves in the sea. They go mad. You can imagine this whole scene has been overwhelming. For the disciples, it's been overwhelming. For those who are watching, it's been overwhelming. And so what do they do? Well, the text tells us that The herdsmen, verse 14, fled and told in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. So they go, surrounding farms and areas. They come to see what has happened, verse 15. Now, Mark does something very specific here. It doesn't show up in our text. But he switches from a a past tense to a present tense to really draw us in. Because this is the focal point. The eyes for a little bit have been off of Jesus. Now they need to be thrown back on Jesus. And so he says in verse 15, And they came to Jesus. Who do you go to when something happens? You go to the person who's in control. You go to the person who's in charge. These people don't even realize what they're doing, but they go straight to Jesus. Why? Because he's the one everybody knows is in control of this whole thing. He's, he's totally got all of this under control. So they, they go to Jesus. They came to Jesus, the text tells us, And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now, it's it's a passive verb. They didn't freak themselves out. I don't know if you've ever done that. They, They were afraid. They observed Jesus. They observed the man that they could not bind and control now sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And I would argue while it's easy for us to chastise them because we know they're going to tell Jesus to go away and it's easy for us to mock them and go, I would never do that. Here's what I say is the greater danger The greater danger is for us in our day and time who so redefine Jesus that He neither be feared nor bowed before. At least they recognized that this Jesus, this man who was there, had such great power and authority that they could not control Him. They couldn't contain Him. It was just a simple equation. We couldn't contain the demon-possessed guy. This guy contained the demon-possessed guy. We can't control that guy. And they had a response of fear. In our day and time, we, we get this idea that Jesus is someone that, that 
is not to be feared. We, we, we can rewrite him. We can create him till he's so pacified and so weak and so feeble he need be neither feared nor bowed before. That is not Jesus. Men, that's not the Jesus that you need. That's not the Jesus that will satisfy your soul. The Jesus that will, not, will satisfy your soul is not one that you can control and manipulate. It is the Jesus before whom you bow everything you are. So they plead with him to leave. And Jesus leaves. I know that's astonishing and a lot could be said about that. Two things Jesus marvels at in the Gospel of Mark. Faith and unbelief. Jesus seems to put up no fight. This, Je- this Jesus who has all this power and authority puts up no fight. They beg with him to depart. And so, verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begs him that he might be with him. Those are such simple words and they are beautiful. Where does this man want to be? I just want to be with Jesus. I just want to be with Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you may in your mind right now be picturing a totally transformed man. He's bathed. He's shaved. He's brushed his teeth multiple times. He's gargled. He's got on a nice pair of khaki pants and an Oxford shirt. He looks like he could teach your Sunday school class. He's nice, he's clean, it's all together, and you would be picturing a totally wrong person. This man, for all we know, is still disgusting. The only thing that's changed is that he now has clothes on and he's not screaming and cutting himself, but his body still bears scars, his hair is probably still disgusting, his beard crazy, his, his smell repulsive, and he just wants to be with Jesus. And ironically, Jesus tells the man that he can't be with him. Verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. If there was ever a bad translation, that's it right there. It doesn't say friends, and I can't imagine this guy had a lot of friends. Go to yours, go to your people. Go to them. Now, this, was to- this is a total change in the Gospel of Mark. Because most of the times, Jesus does miracles, and he tells people, don't tell anyone. Stay silent. But here he tells this man, he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now I want you again just to picture this man in your mind. I want you to think about what he looks like. I want you to ask questions that you should be asking. Would we let him teach a Sunday school class here? If we were going to, I don't know, look for volunteers for something, I don't know, like VBS, would we we set this guy loose on the kids? We're not, just so you know. I, David Barber's thankful I cleared that up. People are withdrawing their children now. God enlists this man to be his ambassador to these Gentile people. 
just like he is. And I ask myself the question, what, what does this man know? Does this man even know the Torah? Does this man understand fully who this Jesus is? Has he, I mean, does he, does he get it? What, what does this man have? What does this man know? Here's what this man knows. It's what Jesus says. I want you to say this. I want you to go to people and I want you to tell them what the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. Now that message will be all the more profound because this man's reputation is ruined, because this man's body is riddled with scars that will never heal, because this man, everyone knows, was absolutely hopeless, was someone they couldn't control and he couldn't control himself, but what the Lord did for him radically changed him. It's important to note this man was not looking for Jesus. Right? That, that's not how the story starts. The running to Jesus wasn't that this demon-possessed man had really been trying to clean up his life. And so then he finally ran to Jesus and fell down before him. No, this man was not looking for Jesus. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. It was that Jesus and his sovereign plans and purposes had gotten his disciples into a boat, gone all the way across the sea, gotten out of that boat so that he could pour out mercy on that man. And in a total wild way he gets back in the boat and he leaves and the only thing he has done the only thing he has accomplished is to save by his sovereign grace the wildest worst most filthy man in the bunch and then says to that man you go and declare the lord has had mercy on you mercy is always free Mercy has to be free mercy cannot be constrained by anything or it is no longer mercy in, in the Gospel of Romans, that, that great section of 9 through 11, Paul loves to use the word mercy. And he strains this point out. God in His sovereignty shows mercy on whom He shows mercy. No one constrains Him. No one makes Him. It has got to be free and He does it and gives it to whomever He chooses. The message of this man was not, hey, I went looking for Jesus. I went searching for mercy and I found it. The message that this man has is that mercy found me. And if I'm standing here talking to you with my scar-covered body, it may just be that mercy is finding you. Now men, let me ask you something this morning. How often is that the message that comes out of our mouths? How often is that the message that people are hearing from us? There is this idea in one sense that manliness and maybe even a confused sense of biblical manliness is to act like you have your life together. Like you've cleaned it all up. Like your life is the sum total of your good choices. And that you just got a little Jesus to make you a little better, to kind of take you over the mark. You don't share with people your failures your struggles, your difficulties, because that, 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 that would take away some of the glory that you're seeking. It would take away some of what you think is your manliness. 
This man goes out and he has one message to declare and I would argue it's the message that we have to declare not that I am good but rather that I was totally out of control couldn't control myself others couldn't control me I was enslaved to sin and had no hope but mercy found me. I think it's also the case in our day and time that we are more likely to argue about where we think Kevin Durant will be next year when basketball season rolls around. We are more likely to argue a political point of view than we are to open our mouths and declare the mercies of God. And not to say to people, I can't fathom the sinfulness of your life. That's not the message this man left with. I don't understand how you could have those desires. I don't understand how you could believe that. That's not the message. The message is, I totally understand. Because that's me without Jesus. The message that should be on our lips, men, is that I wasn't looking for mercy, but mercy found me. And if there's anything good in me, wife, if there's anything good in me, children, it is not that I am a good man, but that God has done great things for me. I can't help but believe if that was the message that came out of our mouths as men and we stand it firm, believing that Jesus Christ is awesome and authoritative King who has established His kingdom and is coming again to reign, that there would not be an impact in this community and in our homes Instead, we're so caught up declaring so many other things, busy telling so many other stories, bragging about our power, bragging about our strength, that we fail to just declare this one simple message, I don't know much. I can't study in the Greek. I've been doing it for like a year and a half now, and I'm still struggling with it. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know all the theology. With this, I know what the Lord has done in my life, and that He has shown me mercy. Here's the crazy thing in the midst of all this. The crazy thing in the midst of all this, this irony that's sitting on the backdrop of this whole thing, is that the one person who's undisputably the one worthy of worship, the one who is awesome, the one who everyone is going to and acknowledging, you're the one, you're in control, is the very one who's serving. Jesus takes all this power and all this authority and He is bending it. He is using it. Why? For what end? Well, one, to instruct some really dumb men so that they would understand who He is. He's bending it so that He can cross a sea for the sole purpose of saving one demon-possessed man who is not worthy of an ounce of His time. Jesus would put it well when He says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus. Do you see Him? Do you see Him? Men, do you see Him? I hope that you do, and I hope that just in some way He's in a little, He's a little more focused in. He's a little less blurry, and you see Him and you understand how awesome He is. And I pray that there's an encouragement this morning to declare the mercy that you have found in Him. And if you have not found that mercy, make today the day. Jesus did lay down His life as a ransom for many. And if you are here this morning, it is not by accident. It is not just because you chose to be here. 
It may just be because mercy is finding you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for it because it declares to us Jesus. And we need that message to be declared to us. We, we are not fit to try and define our own Savior. We, we need your word to help us to understand the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that we are overwhelmed by how awesome and great he is. And that we would be busy about declaring the mercy that you have shown us through him. Pray if there's anyone here, be it a father or otherwise, who has not put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would do it today. We pray it in his mighty name. Amen.